Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 110, David Crump. Why do we admit criminal confessions into evidence? Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is David Crump. David is the Nibel Professor of Law at the University of Houston Law Center, where his research and teaching covers a wide range of subjects, including evidence, civil procedure, property, and criminal law. Our podcast today features David's article, Why Do We Admit Criminal Confessions into Evidence?, which was published in the Seattle University Law Review. In it, David asks a simple question. Given the decidedly negative scholarly literature on criminal confessions, why do we even admit confessions into evidence? Being the good academic, David seeks not to advocate for greater use of confessions or even to argue with its critics, but rather simply to understand what is at stake and to get a more balanced view of confessions generally. My conversation with David explores some of the reasons why confessions are such powerful evidence and why excluding them is often easier said than done. David, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. The title of your article asks a rather provocative question. Why do we admit criminal confessions into evidence? And to start us off, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about your primary motivation for writing on this topic, and maybe more specifically, the problem that you're trying to address. I was at a conference, and the panelists were talking about the reasons for excluding confessions, which is what all the literature is. I asked the question of the panelists, most of the time we admit confessions into evidence, as a matter of fact. Why do we ever admit them? What are the reasons for admitting them? And the panelists kind of looked at me blankly. I looked at the literature and law professors haven't written about why we admit them. There's a lot of writing about why we exclude them. But if we admit them most of the time, why isn't there an article about that? Why was I the first person to write about it? In a sense, I think you're trying to answer that puzzle as opposed to necessarily trying to push back on the conventional wisdom? Or do you think that we perhaps shouldn't be so negative? I suppose in a little bit, I am pushing back, but not really. The article, of course, recognizes there are reasons to exclude confessions. Unreliability or constitutional violations are the principal reasons. I might add that in my state, Texas, the Miranda case really isn't most of the time the issue. We have a very firm confessions statute that excludes confessions except under certain conditions. So there are reasons for excluding confessions, and the article recognizes that. It's 
a nuanced argument. So your argument features a number of reasons for admitting criminal confessions. And in the interest of time, what I'm going to do is touch on several that I found particularly interesting, if that's okay with you. Sure. One of the big reasons you give is that, frankly, they're, quote, good evidence. So tell us more about what you mean by that, by good evidence. Generally, the person who is speaking in the confession knows the truth about the matter. And that's true even if it is a false confession. The speaker is talking against his or her own interest, which in the law of evidence is a factor that is thought to enhance the truthfulness. If there is something wrong with the confession, if the confession is inaccurate in some respect, we've got the person who is best at explaining why. And of course, that person has a criminal defense lawyer whose job is to challenge the confession. So for the most part, confessions of the kind that are admitted are good evidence. What if they're not good evidence? Well, just like any other kind of evidence, that can happen. And we have the jury ultimately to ferret that out. This is true of every kind of evidence. Scientific evidence, was it handled properly? Eyewitnesses, do they remember correctly? Did they perceive correctly? And are they telling the truth? Criminal confessions can be good evidence for those reasons. In the article, I also discuss why they can be not good evidence. And I think you also mentioned that in some crimes, confessions are almost necessary because there's otherwise a great absence of evidence. That is true. When I was an assistant DA, I found that arson cases were almost impossible to prove the evidence burns up. Not the matter of proving the fact of arson, but proving that this defendant did it. Since everything burns up, it's difficult to pinpoint that individual unless they get caught in the fire or confess. Without confessions, most arson cases I found were not capable of being proved. So here's the pushback on the argument that confessions are good evidence. Obviously, I think most can see the argument that confessions are powerful and they're probative. But then I think there's the concern that not only are they sometimes false or self-serving, as the case may be, but also that they can be a bit too powerful, that perhaps a lay decision maker who's not familiar with the concerns over false confessions might weigh the confession a bit too heavily. You end up with a quasi rule 403 type concern here for disfavoring confessions. Is that legitimate for you on this score? Well, the fact that something is powerful evidence really isn't a reason to exclude it. We do give juries instructions to be wary of the confession and make sure that it's truthful. There are several ways we can go about this issue. First of all, we can compare it to the other evidence in the case. Does it fit? Oftentimes, there are matters that were not publicly disclosed. In fact, you can't publicly disclose everything because you just can't ever tell everything. And so comparing the confession against the rest of the evidence, but people often say that eyewitness testimony is too powerful. But what do we do without eyewitness evidence? Every kind of evidence can be too powerful, I guess. People say that about DNA evidence, for example. 
that the jury will be fooled by it. I found that juries were sometimes biased in some cases for or against a given crime. If it's a narcotics crime, possession with intent to distribute, say, the saying is that people will take less evidence than they would in most cases. The idea that it's too powerful isn't a reason to exclude. There are a lot of things that are, quote, too powerful, but we admit them because should we really take the most powerful evidence away from the jury? There is this philosophy in our rules of evidence about giving jurors bits and pieces and hiding some of the most important kinds of things. I found that jurors were angry about that. They felt lied to. Okay, so the guy committed five other burglars just like this one, and you didn't tell us that? The rules of evidence would exclude it, right, Ed? The problem is that jurors feel lied to, and that's one of the reasons that today we have a hard time getting jurors. I just don't think the idea that a particular kind of evidence is too powerful is a reason for excluding it. Tell us why it's unreliable or why it violates the subject's rights. And those are good reasons for excluding, but not the idea that it's too powerful, which is to say good evidence. Yeah, for sure. That's the classic tension between a paternalistic or a, a hiding the ball type view and a free proof view where you actually just explain the difficulties of the evidence. Let me move to another of the reasons that you give. You suggest that confessions are what you term fair evidence, that they are part of the adversarial system. Tell us a little bit more about that idea. I think that argument is not particularly strong. The idea there is simply that we have an adversary system, and so we admit the evidence against you. You can use your evidence against the state. And that argument is true as far as it goes, but it's not a good reason for admitting evidence that's not reliable. You mentioned 403, unreliable evidence we exclude, and evidence that constitutes a constitutional violation. Those kinds of evidence should be excluded, and the fact that it's an adversary system doesn't save them, in my view. This is one of the arguments, though, that's given, and in fact, the Advisory Committee on the Federal Rules of Evidence wrote a note to the effect that admissions, which a confession is, are good evidence because the defendant in an adversary system can rebut them or explain why they're not valid evidence. I don't think that's a heavy argument. The fact that there can be good evidence is a better argument. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think that advisory committee note is the one for 801D2A. And the idea is that, well, you said it, so therefore it should be admissible. It's never seemed entirely clear to me why necessarily that was a part of the adversarial system. One thing that I recall is that for centuries that there were witness competency rules that barred party testimony from the courtroom. And the system in that context was still adversarial in nature. So both sides were still presenting their evidence. They just weren't able to include their personal statements because the court thought that those were too biased. Very odd. Everything's biased, I suppose, <laughs> when you have human witnesses. But 
Can you imagine trying a case against the defendant and not allowing the defendant to testify? Well, that's where we actually got to, as you point out. And I think to modern ears, it seems odd. My only point was that it's it's not necessary that we do it that way. It just depends on the way that we want to construct our system. So the last rationale that I'd like to explore is the legitimacy claim that you raise, which is that in a sense, confession should be used lest we create disrespect for the criminal justice system. So let me let you elaborate a bit more on that idea before talking about it. Sure. A great sociologist once said, not, he was not a lawyer, which probably gives him a better view of these things, who once said that these criminal justice system and its outcomes operate primarily on upright people. He used the right phrase, upright people. That is, people who don't commit crimes. A person sitting in his chair and reading the newspaper gets an impression of the criminal justice system and man, we got a big worry if all of those people begin to believe that the system doesn't work right. Imagine a situation, and I have seen some cases like this, in which there's a serious, serious crime. And for essentially frivolous reasons, the evidence gets excluded. In my state, it has to either be in writing or corroborated by certain kinds of things. And there have been cases where the defendant confessed. It was not in writing, although it was relayed by police officers. And it was corroborated, but not in the right way. And with a horrendous crime, that really talks down the criminal justice system. In one case, I think maybe Harris versus New York, the Supreme Court wrote that we should not let gossamer possibilities of prejudice create disrespect for our system. That's not the way most people use their vocabularies, right? (laughs) Gossamer. But what he means is far out ideas that it's somehow vaguely unfair shouldn't be allowed to have outcomes that create disrespect for the system. That's a terrible thing when that happens. Intuitively, I think I understand this idea very well. It's obviously a problem either way when you have a legal outcome and then, and this is true even in the civil context, you have a legal outcome and then you have a segment on media. You can think of, I mean, this may be dating me a little bit, but I can classically think of news programming on Dateline NBC or something like that, showing that there's lots of other evidence that the jury seems to have not taken into account. But here's the trouble that I have with this idea, or at least this is the pushback. It seems to me that legal systems over the ages have dealt with confessions in different ways. So as far as I remember, traditional Jewish law held that confessions were simply inadmissible. And I think that that was partly based on concerns about reliability, but also about concerns about the morality of having someone's own statements used to condemn themselves. And then, of course, there's the complete polar opposite, which you saw in European systems during the medieval period, which were almost entirely based on confession, that confession was the linchpin of of everything. It seems to me that whether or not you admit 
confessions, at least as a theoretical matter, is not necessary for legitimacy. And so I'm wondering whether the argument here is that perhaps in a modern system, or at least the modern American tradition where you have mass media and you have people questioning after the fact that then a legal system that ignores key pieces of evidence like a confession would have difficulty commanding respect. There have been systems in the old Jewish tradition, you're right, excluded confessions, and you can have a system that works that way. It seems odd to American ears, but it's possible to have such a system. There are reasons for excluding evidence of various kinds, and you can think of all kinds of things in our system that are excluded, but a European judge today would know about because they don't use juries. It just seems odd if the defendant has confessed not to let the jury know that. I talk to a lot of jurors, and I guess maybe I have their point of view in mind. I found them very aware of the possibility that confessions could be inaccurate. That's a lot of what's out there in the public. You're right about Dateline. I recall a case where Dateline essentially falsified the situation. It was a story about fires being started in cars, and they put a fire source underneath. I can't remember exactly what it was that created a bigger fire than would ever be in reality. And they had to have a segment in which they said repeatedly, we do not deny General Motors' point of view about this. It can be sensationalized. Our rules of evidence don't really countenance that as much as the public media do. But you can't do anything about what they do unless it's really false, like that example because we also have a First Amendment in this country, right? Even if the rules of evidence might exclude something, Dateline could put it on. One thing I didn't get a good sense of in your paper, and you said at the beginning of this interview that the argument here is quite nuanced, but I didn't get a sense of where you ultimately came out on the admissibility of confessions today. I think you recognize that The doctrine involves a lot of balancing, and you were trying to simply provide the inputs to the balancing. But I'm curious about your normative position on this. Are we excluding too many confessions, or are we admitting too many confessions? And why do you think that? I suspect we have it about right. Sometimes I think The constitutional doctrines have been interpreted by the Supreme Court with a clumsy hand. That happens. Justice Fortas one time compared the Supreme Court and its view of things to watching a baseball game through a remote knothole in the fence. Sometimes there are doctrines that are a little too oriented toward exclusion, but that happens with everything. The answer is that there are arguments both ways, and it depends upon the case, and maybe that's as it should be. There are cases that adopt explicit balancing approaches. Buyers versus California, you can require someone to stop and identify after an automobile accident. That really confesses, doesn't it? 
But the court said, balancing these things, no constitutional doctrine goes all the way. How do we know what we're balancing? (laughs) We should have in mind the rules in favor as well as the rules against. And in general, I think the court has done that and done it roughly. It's always rough, right? The law is a clumsy thing. It's like using a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. And we don't always get it right, although we do in criminal cases, I think, most of the time. I didn't write this in order to push for more confessions. I wanted us to think through why we admit them in the cases in which we admit them. Final question for you. What's next for this project? Any future directions you plan to take the work or that you'd like to see other people do? I'd like to see people write a counter to it. We law professors, I suppose every one of us would agree with that. We are different in that we like issues. We like to see how different people would argue different things. I'd love to see somebody write a counterpoint to this article. Why don't you you do it, Ed, and say what you think about each of the arguments. (laughs) You may be on to other things. Well, I think I've done some of that work today in the interview. Exactly right. But I'd like to see somebody else write something about this. I don't concentrate as many law professors do. The most recent article I wrote was about settlement in civil cases. I have been blessed. I had a varied career. I did criminal prosecution, criminal defense. Civil litigation was probably the biggest chunk of what I did. I did appeals, Martindale Hubble top certified in appeals, and I also did administrative and real estate work. I just was really lucky, and I've written about every one of those things. So my next project may not be on this, except uh, trying to encourage other people like yourself, which you just did, ask questions about the arguments. Well, David... Thanks for a very interesting discussion about confessions and certainly making me think a little bit harder about them. Great having you on the show. Thank you, sir. It's my privilege. What initially drew me to David's article is that it really made me think hard about confessions. Are they really worth the trouble and dangers that they create? To modern minds, I think the answer seems obvious. Of course we need to admit confessions. Confessions are powerful evidence of guilt. Yes, we can't have confessions that are extracted through coercion, both due to dignitary and reliability concerns, and the recent social science literature has warned us about the dangers of false confessions, so we shouldn't always assume their truth. But confessions as a whole are a huge part of legal culture. Most people simply don't confess to things that they didn't commit. So there's a fundamental reliability to them, at least far more than any other kind of testimonial evidence. And if one thinks about it, our modern system of criminal justice, which revolves around plea bargains, is also almost entirely built on confessions or at least the acceptance of guilt. And culturally, even if they don't mirror reality, the confession is the classic conclusion to the murder mystery in the popular imagination. 
Sherlock Holmes or Matlock or whoever you prefer solves the mystery, corners the perpetrator, and then the murderer confesses. Culturally, that's how you know the truth. But as my conversation with David suggested, deeper reflection suggests that the importance of the confession to truth can be highly contingent on a society's culture. The Talmud, capturing Jewish law, or at least debates about Jewish law over a thousand years ago, argued against admitting confessions both in court and from out of court. The reason? Not only concerns about self-incrimination, but also concerns that a defendant would condemn himself out of despair over a situation. And one can creatively envision a system of proof in which confessions were simply excluded. Make the state prove its case independently. If the evidence beyond the confession isn't strong enough for a criminal conviction, then perhaps that's the correct result. Of course, continental medieval Europe represented the polar opposite. Yes, the use of torture during the Inquisition represents the worst abuses of the use of confessions, but the intellectual framework clearly believed that confessions were important to the process of determining truth. Our modern evidence system has opted to stand on an uneasy middle ground, allowing some confessions in and throwing other confessions out. As someone who tends to be biased in favor of physical and other circumstantial evidence over testimonial evidence, though, I'm not sure if I agree with David's assessment that the current system has it about right. I wonder if we might be better off demanding more independent proof from the government and not relying on, at times, overly impressive but surprisingly unreliable defendant confessions. In any event, that's food for thought, and my thanks go to David for providing it. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and the music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.